Welcome, Science Monkey viewers slash listeners. This is our second ever video episode of Science Monkey. I'm, I'm not used to having viewers. We're not. I mean, no. it might not be. Or viewer, maybe. Viewer. <laughs> my mother might watch this. Uh, well, Graham, where are you right now, Graham? I'm in my backyard. So this is, not a, this is not a virtual background. This is an actual nature. What city are you in? In Toronto. And I'm a professor at the University of Toronto. But I study... I research classical Chinese literature, which is not really relevant to COVID, but I'll represent the person who doesn't have a background in epidemiology. All things Chinese are relevant to COVID, don't you know? <laughs> I suppose so. And you probably have special insights that we all lack. And where are you? Rewa? I'm on the bridge of the Enterprise D. Mm-hmm. And um, right now the Enterprise D is parked in my home in Ottawa, where I rent a house by the bus station. And I say it that way to piss off my spouse. <laughs> thinks it's a very ghetto thing to say, but it's true. We rent a house by the bus station. Mm-hmm. And I'm a professor in health sciences at the University of Ottawa. And today is our second ever all COVID episode. Right. So what you been doing, Graham? Um, staying away from people. Uh, <laughs> unless I know them well. Actually, we, I should say we've had a few uh, friends over, but it's always, I'm glad for the warm weather because we just, they come straight through, they go to the backyard. And we stay like two meters apart. So that's one way of socializing. We only have about two people over at a time. So that's as far as we've gotten in terms of getting back to, to normal. That's that's great. You know, that's the way to do it. We were talking before we started recording that there have been almost no cases. Well, almost no. Much fewer cases when people stay outdoors. And that's yep. because of a number of factors, as you know. Um, it's easier to distance when you're outside. Yeah. There's more humidity, and with increased humidity, the droplets travel less further because they're right. weighted down by the air. By the you water. said humidity like it was a big word I wouldn't understand. <laughs> humidity. Humidity. So is this uh, – just don't say moist. A lot of our view <laughs> word. <laughs> I just said it. Um, is this one of the reasons behind the, the, the second wave that often comes in the fall and winter is people are moving back indoors? That's exactly right. Like one of the reasons we think that the common cold goes away in summer for the most part and comes back mm-hmm. in the fall and winter is people go inside, right. also drier. Mm-hmm. So people are spending more time closer together and the droplets can travel. A right. So outdoor activities are great. And this two meter thing, I've been asked so often by so many media in the last couple of days, mm-hmm. mostly because as you probably heard, the prime minister yeah. asked, why are you so good looking, Dr. DeVanton? Yeah, that is a tough one. That's Actually, they don't say doctor, but anyway. No, because apparently, <laughs> apparently, only MDs are doctors right, right. by North American media. That's that's been established. <laughs> no matter how good looking you are. <laughs> Sorry, I, I derailed. You were going to make a point about uh, no, good, being good looking. Two meters. Well, it's hard being good looking. Um, people just don't take it seriously. From two meters away, you're all right, actually. (laughs) (laughs) If you're two meters away from the camera, you're four meters away visually. Yes, there you go. Anyway, I was going to say, you probably heard the Prime Minister of UK, Boris Johnson, contemplating reducing their two-meter rule to one meter. Um, and so I've been asked a lot about that this past right. week. Do you have any feelings about that topic? Well, I understood that two meters was probably giving you a buffer. It was more than you needed. And I think you need to give people the buffer because they're not going to be two meters apart anyway. So if you give them one meter, they're going to be 500, you know, 50 centimeters apart instead. So I'd rather so, more. It's so interesting that your perspective on this, which is not wrong, is all about um, controlling people. Yes. You know, yes. psychology, which is something that we don't think enough about in epidemiology. We think about yeah. the numbers and you know, the data, right. not about how people will re- receive it and respond to it. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of this data comes from studies on influenza going back decades about the distance that the droplets are likely to travel. And they right. found between one and two meters is when the droplets fall to the floor. And so right. after that, it doesn't matter how far you are. With every additional meter, your risk goes down by 50%. Right, right. So some countries that have the one meter rule, some have 1.5 meters, some have 1.8 meters, some have two meters. Mm-hmm. The U.S. has six feet. Right. Yeah, and that's what, 1.8 meters? Yeah. Um, so um, it the science is, is fudgy, except to say that further is better. And if also, you can't though, go you have, further, 
factor in duration, right? So if I'm walking by someone in two opposite directions on the street, if I get within less than two meters, but we're just passing by each other, it's very little duration of oh, yeah. contact I, there. I always say that. I'm more comfortable walking by someone uh, a foot away than I am yeah. having a conversation with someone two meters away. Uh, two meters, yeah, exactly. Uh, even if we, when we're in our backyard and we have people over, when we start speaking in an animated way, I start getting a little bit uncomfortable because I know the, you know, the louder I speak, the more moisture I'm emitting. And, and, you know those closed talkers? Yes. Yeah. Like, this must be killing them. Like, what are yeah. they doing? <laughs> the closed talkers and the sprayers? Yeah. Maybe <laughs> <That's laughs> someone's a... thesis at a year. <laughs> happened to the closed talkers? <laughs> <laughs> so the two meters... Um, what, okay, so I don't, I don't understand why Boris Johnson thinks that... It's because if you open up more businesses, like... Ah, businesses, there you go. Okay, so you can cram more people into... Right, right. And elevators, obviously, you can't stay two meters apart in an elevator. Right. Uh, so it, it, because people are going to be crammed in, what is um, a workable distance, right. scientific and yet manageable? So in some ways, I guess your your approach is correct. It's, it's managing the message and getting people uh, mm. psychologically. In our, in our building, the management put up a, a sign that said two people – uh, two meters apart in the elevator, and someone just crossed it out, put one person in the elevator. And that's kind <laughs> of what I've been doing is if the elevator opens up and there's someone, just one other person on it, I'm, if I'm wearing a mask and they're wearing a mask, I just ask them, is it okay? Do you, are you comfortable with me coming into the elevator? And don't be afraid to say no. They usually say that's fine. But, yeah. yeah, you're going to get those um, assholes, though, who insist this is not a thing and right. intentionally want to expose people to their nonsense. Yeah, um, They're probably not as prevalent as we think. They're, they're out there. Well, so, we have we have one in our building, I know, because every once in a while, Appy and I go out and do the bang in the pots thing at 7.30, and he has a megaphone, and he screams, the, the fear is worse than the virus, and stuff like that. And so we just bang louder. <laughs> and then Appy got so frustrated at him that she broke one of our pasta strainers, and like, the <laughs> went flying everywhere. <laughs> For uh, people listening to this five years from now, explain to them why you're banging on pots at 7.30. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure who started it or where it started, but it was to show support for, uh, originally it was to show support for the medical frontline workers, but I, then it sort of extended to anyone that is an essential worker. For everyone else that's just sitting at home, it doesn't have to go to work. It was admittedly a token gesture, but it was a gesture just to saying, we, we're aware of you every day and we're grateful for you for what you're doing uh, every day. The danger of it, of course, is a lot of people think that they just bang a pot and that they've done their job of... of you know, taking care of COVID and so <laughs> it's Twitter, Twitter activism without the Twitter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's something though. It's something. And yeah. I always think about the bus drivers. Mm -hmm. they're, they're my heroes, even though I will never take a bus ever again. <laughs> I know it's, it's bizarre. I see the bus going by and there are one or two people on it. I take it because I know there are only going to be one or two people on it. So, sure. but anyway, we have questions. Oh yes. And so many questions and so few yeah. answers. So let's, uh, why don't you start asking me a question and see if we have any answers. All right. This one, uh, I believe, is from Mary. We'll just use first names on, on our podcast here. Is it a podcast still when it's video? Sure. What does pod stand for? It's well, supposed to be it's... product on demand. No, but... no. It's the Apple iPod. But... It is. It is. But they yeah. rebranded oh, they, they? Okay. because they think we're stupid. <laughs> well, those, those can play video as well. So anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. This, this question relates to something we are just talking about in terms of the second wave. And of course, I have a question about if you never get out of the first wave, like most of the U.S. is in, when is the second wave? <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> Did you take your riddle in? <laughs> okay, here we go. What are the individual factors at play that could result in a second wave of cases in the fall? Okay. Let's talk about second waves and waves in general. Yeah. Why do these things happen in waves in the first place? Good question. So it's, I, I was talking to a journalist about this earlier this week and the analogy. You talked to journalists? I never would have known. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> what did they say? What did you say? For people watching this five years from now, in the past month, I've done over 200 media interviews. 200. 200. These bags under my eyes, it's, an, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> and I, I keep track of them. That's why I know it's like 212. Yeah. Um, okay. So I related it to the predator and prey model that you see in an ecosystem. 
Mm-hmm. So as um, if you think of wolves and rabbits in an ecosystem, you have a bunch of rabbits, you've got a bunch of wolves. As the wolves chase and eat the rabbits, the, uh, the wolf population increases. As the yep. wolf population increases, the rabbit population decreases. Right. As the rabbit population decreases, the wolf population decreases, and yep. so on. It goes in a cycle. Right. So viruses and people work in a similar fashion. As this virus manifested, it's charging through the population. It's increasing. It's the wolf. People get wise to it, and they start doing the things to prevent infection, and they rush inside wow. the distance, and so the virus diminishes. Now, as people sort of um, feel brave again and enter into the world, well, the, the wolf manifests again and increases, and this keeps on going up and down. Well, that's just one factor, right? Well, it's all about the does that drive the whole wave thing? Because aren't there environmental things too? Yes. And so uh, it's about susceptibility and what makes people susceptible. So right now we think in Canada, fewer than 5% of the population has been infected, which means about 95% are still susceptible. And so long as people are susceptible, there's still rabbits for the wolf to eat. Mm-hmm. What makes you susceptible is, you know, um, not having the antibodies, but also being exposed to infected people. So as we enter the economy... Uh, we are socializing more and becoming more susceptible and therefore greater likelihood to be infected. Right. Now, the environmental factors like being outside and wearing a mask, this will mitigate that. Right. So the, the rate at which the wolf rises into the peak, towards the peak, will be slower and possibly even not even noticeable. So I'm fond of saying that if we do all the right public health things, if we don't have large indoor gatherings, if we wear masks all the time and if we wash our hands and uh, and don't meet with strangers too often. Sorry, single people. Um, <laughs> Unless you're outside. Unless you're outside, yeah. Uh, f- full body condoms. Uh, sex with a respirator. <laughs> just just with the respirator. There's got to be a new Pornhub category, which we'll talk about <laughs> later. If we do all these things, then I believe that what are what will be subsequent waves will be little, little, little small bumps. Right. may not even be noticeable. Uh, so, yeah, so is a second wave inevitable? Yes, in the sense that because everybody is so susceptible and the virus still exists, then it should manifest again. But no, in the sense that if we follow the public health requirements, it should not be noticeable. So the, the reason third, we're not seeing waves in the U.S. is because they're not following the public health well, requirements? Well, the U.S. never lost its first wave. They should have been right. done their first wave by the end of June. That right. was all the predictions said that with the assumption that people would follow the stay-at-home orders. Right. You've actually got, eh, eh, eh. Yeah. Um, Another factor to consider, though, is... They're very effective. These measures are, are highly effective, then. Yeah. Like, I was reading a paper um, written in 2007, earlier this week, about uh, lessons that we learned from SARS-1. And there are three lessons. And this is, this is fascinating. Lesson number one, transparency is everything. We have not been transparent. Right. Uh, data from China, data from Quebec... Whatever. Number two is the 19th century technologies work better than 21st century technologies. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Sure, the um, the monoclonal antibodies and the uh, convalescent serums, all that stuff is great. But wearing of masks and hiding at home, that's what works best. Yeah. Number three is going to be controversial, and that is that animal husbandry is not good for human health. Right. So uh, you take that up with the authors of this paper. But those three factors are relevant today more so than they were in 2007. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to say something about the, the virus mutating. Was that, that the third? You, you, you were on number three? Or yeah, not- yeah. I was on something else there. Um, talking about the, we talked about the susceptibility of the population. We talked about um, uh, doing the right thing via public health. But the virus might just go away. Right. Dangerous thing to say, but SARS yeah. one kind of just went away. Yeah. MERS kind of finished the away. vaccine, right? They never yeah. the vaccine. And uh, even Spanish flu, after a couple of years, it kind of just went away. So that might happen. I'm not saying. Couple years will. is a long time, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, SARS went months. away in one season, yeah. and MERS went away in you know, one season too. Okay, so back to the factors that would contribute to the second wave. I think you said there was a third one. I think that's it. The, um, okay, that's it. All right. Mutation. I wanted to bring up, uh, there is a China angle on this, actually, uh, about masks being a 19th century technology. Uh, I'd have to look it up. I don't remember the details, but I remember roughly the first time that masks were used widely to combat an epidemic was a Manchurian epidemic. Um, and it was killing tons and tons of people. 
And a Chinese doctor actually came up with the idea of wearing a mask. And all the Western doctors poo-pooed it. One of the French doctors said, oh, that's silly. And he went, marched into the ward and immediately contracted this, this terrible disease and died. And everyone else was like, oh, maybe the Chinese guy is on to something. And then they all started wearing masks and it really uh, cut down. On it's the, funny you say that. You said poo-poo. I thought, that sounds like a French verb. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll, I'll find the link and, uh, and we yeah. can put it up on the, on the website because it's quite interesting. And they have all these pictures of people wearing just cloth masks. Um, I mean, around. we have the, as you know, these movements in the U.S. that are so anti-mask because mask is liberty. Yeah. They have and, cards now saying, I have a mask exemption. And they are claiming that they have some exemption under the American Disabilities Act and they're threatening businesses with fines if they don't let them in with their mask. So. That's a tough one because it is possible to have a medical exemption for a mask if you have a breathing disorder or a panic disorder. But you can't just print like up a card on your, on your, right. on your, by yourself. But, but let's assume they're being genuine. Like, what do you do then? Yeah. I, I would say that the public health needs of the many outweigh the disability needs of the few, sadly. Yeah. Um, get someone to shop for you. Anyway. Oh, wow. Anyway, yeah. That's another another 19th century solution. (laughs) Uh, We we get down the rabbit hole on masks for a long time. I mean, uh, one thing I do want to say, though, is remember that my mask protects you and your mask protects me. Right. Somehow that message keeps getting lost. Yeah. Never about protecting yourself. The mask on the person who's potentially infected, and maybe they're pre-symptomatic, is is the most effective one, right? I mean, if they're shedding tons of virus and I have a mask on, maybe that gives me five minutes, ten minutes extra. Who knows? But yeah. anyway. Uh, oh, here's an interesting question from Allison. Can a dead body still be contagious? If Good so, question. for how long? Okay, so here's how I look at this. Um, some people think about uh, SARS-CoV-2 as a bloodborne disease that is, in, uh, that is transmitted through respiration. Oh. And if it's, that's the case, then it should exist in the fluids of a dead body. Right. The thing is, how do you get it from the dead body then? Do you now like ingest of the fluid of a dead body into your mucous membranes? Okay. I didn't need that image, but anyway. The dead body isn't going to breathe on you. Right. Now, you could touch it, I suppose, if it's leaking fluids, and then touch your face, and maybe in theory get some virus onto you. I think that's possible. Mm. Never been demonstrated. Right. I would rank that in the realm of possibility, but very low probability. The theory of touching, getting virus in your fingers and touching your face, is it that would go through the eye, your mucous membranes around your eyes or something? Or like, yeah. how would it get into okay. So let's go over the, the, your lungs. the ways in which a virus can be transmitted. Number one, via droplets. These things that come out of your lungs, uh, embedded in fluids that go about a meter. Uh, number two is aerosol. Right. So then the nuclei of the droplets float around in the air for a longer period of time and go further. And we're just lucky that the coronavirus, this one, is not aerosol, right? It is a little bit. Okay. It's a little bit, but um, most people think that that's not how most of the transmission works. Right. Number three is fecal oral, mm-hmm. which is exactly what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And this disease might be fecal oral oriented because it, it's incident upon the smooth muscle cells that have ACE2 receptors, including those right. in the intestines. In fact, they have found... Um, viral shedding in the feces of infected people. But right. don't touch people's shit and you're probably yeah. fine. So human centipede's a bad idea right now. Exactly. And, right. you know, they get us concerned about public bathrooms, you know, the aerosolization when you press the flushing and all that, but right. there's no evidence of anyone ever having caught it that way. Right. Uh, number four would be vector, so a, a mosquito biting you and then biting somebody else. Again, no evidence that that's possible. So I would not count that at all. What about a zombie biting you who has COVID? Uh, think about that one. Okay. Yeah. Vampires and zombies. Or a vampire bit a zombie and vice versa. <laughs> oh, can I ask you? Or did you have other ones? No, okay, well, five yeah. is, is a big uh, one. It's fomite. fomite. Fomite transmission is when uh, an infected person coughs on a doorknob and you touch the doorknob right. and then you touch your face. Called doorknob transmission. So that's the one that's probably most likely after a droplet in aerosol. And we always are worried about that. Hence, you know, rec- recommendations that you wipe down your groceries and, and things mm-hmm. like that. But honestly, I have never heard of a single confirmed case of someone right. doing it this way. Yeah. So I think it's highly unlikely. It's certainly um, not a bad idea to wash your hands. I'm, I mean, it's not going right. to only going to help things. Um, yeah. I was just a little bit concerned that that the masks weren't really from the get go 
I guess they didn't know enough or maybe they were afraid that people were going to buy up all the masks or, but really that should have been the one number one message from the beginning. Yes, uh, and that's why we're getting some pushback on masks because people are saying early on, you said, don't wear it. Now you're saying, right. wear and here's, I'm trying to write this blog post about this and I keep getting yeah. sidetracked, but the problem was early on, the messaging was done from a clinical perspective, not a population health perspective. Huh. So from a clinical perspective, we know about masks from working in hospitals where doctors and nurses wear these tight N95 masks to protect right. themselves because they're in these highly infectious areas all the time yeah. and peeling them off very carefully so you don't spread infection to other rooms. Right. That's not what this is. Yeah. It's not a clinical endeavor. It's a population health endeavor. So just having a scarf over your face yeah. prevents you from pushing your air a couple more centimeters. Yeah. And that When scaled up to thousands of people, that's all it takes to reduce transmission. Yeah, it sounds like common sense now. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, all right. Oh, the last thing about the aerosol. So uh, why is measles so much more infectious? So like, how is it hanging in the air? What's the mechanism that it, it hangs around the air a lot more than something like uh, SARS-CoV-2? I have no idea. <laughs> no idea how measles works. Sorry. It, like another one of these viruses could come around and, and it could be like measles where you it's got like a... Yeah. Or not rate of 19 or something. Right. So, I mean, one of the, the thing about uh, SARS-2, what, what makes it so infectious is that it fits so well into the ACE2 receptor, mm. more so than SARS-1 did. I, I suspect measles has a similar interaction with its, um, right. with its uh, receptor. And also the infectious dose might be smaller. You need fewer incident right. organisms. And, and I think more of it just hangs around the air for longer. Apparently. Could be. Yeah. It's a lighter, a lighter I mean, virus. Nothing about measles, so I'm theorizing this part. Okay. Uh, this is from Chandra. It's a longer one, so stay with me. Um, can you hear over your chewing? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stop chewing now. It's probably annoying the listener. Actually, I can't hear it. Yeah. Okay, both Sweden and Japan avoided lockdowns, but Japan has been much more successful in limiting COVID deaths. There have been articles about Japan's cluster-based approach with limited testing. Can you explain what that is, and is that the main difference between Japan and Sweden? And if you could answer this, okay, let's stop there, and I'll go to the next, his next question. After okay, that. what's the cluster-based approach? I don't know offhand what that is. I'm, I'm going to theorize that the cluster-based approach of testing is you test batches rather than individuals. Right. right? And then you can identify that this, this batch over here is probably is fine, but there's one case in that batch, so we're going to um, focus more deeply in that batch. How are you testing a batch? How are you testing a batch? Yeah, well, if you're not testing much, each individually, what are you doing? You can take a bunch of swabs and combine them. Oh, Let's say you have one a building of, of residents. Right. All and that makes it more building. efficient to do the testing. Yeah, because you just do one test for the entire building. Okay, and then you and know you, someone in that building has yes, it. Yes, because most are going to be negative. Um, but right. you find the one that's positive, and then you can investigate more deeply. I'm right. assuming that's what the cluster testing is, and I could be wrong. I have to investigate further. I should have read these questions first. <laughs> um, so for the listener, I have not read these questions first, right. obviously. <laughs> That's quality control at work inside. <laughs> it's also showing off the fact that I'm rolling these things off the top of my head. Because uh, um, the other um, interpretation might be that they're they're testing a cluster of the population over here, and then they're going and testing them over here. And yes, which is a fine way of doing it, too. That's a, a, a fine strategy for surveillance. Which is also, I think, uh, this testing the sewer water has been floated yeah. as an idea, because then you can figure out at least, okay, it's in this neighborhood. Right, and that's part of the fecal oral transmission we talked about. Um, so, so go on. I was saying there are many other differences between Japan and Sweden, but we won't get into them now. Uh, kind of relevant for the question, because he's asking the second part is, why did Japan do better than Sweden? Yeah. Any number of factors. I think it's a real problem to compare countries, hmm. especially in different continents. Right. Different cultures and different age demographics. Yeah. So the geographies are different. The... Um, the cultural behavior is different, and the genetics is different. Yeah, the weather is different. The weather is different. Right? Yeah. Japan's an island. That helps a lot. Yeah. No, no incident traveler cases. They, they could have been seeded at a different time period. What we're finding with this disease is the timing is everything. Yeah. So how early were they exposed? How early did lockdown measures take place? How late did opening up take place? All these things are just huge. That's why BC did so much better than Ontario. One of the many reasons is right. early and hard. Japan acted early, but with you know um, endeavors that weren't as extreme as the West or you know, Western Europe. But 
were effective. And so many young people in Tokyo, for example, live alone. Who knew that? Right. Yeah. So all this- I knew that. They're not having kids either. That's why right. the population is aging out. All that robot sex, that sweet, sweet robot sex. Respirator sex. Okay. Uh, uh, Chandra uh, has a second part to the question. And if you can answer this as well, is it possible and or desirable for Canada at this ch- stage to follow Japan's strategy? But seeing as we don't know exactly what Japan's strategy is. <laughs> I think Canada's doing well overall. Yeah. And with the exception of, you know, Quebec and Ontario, which is pretty much is all Canada. <laughs> um, of Montreal and Toronto in particular. Right, right. Canada's doing very, very well. So I don't think we, we have to follow anyone's um, uh, guidelines except to say that we can learn from other people's experiences with rapid response, mm-hmm. testing, and contact tracing, and maybe cha- use their technology. Has Ontario opened up testing to asymptomatic people or pre-symptomatic people? I, I believe they have. Yeah? Like, if, if I walked into a clinic and asked for a test, I could get one? You have to have a reason. So a suspicion of exposure is good enough. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's good to know. All right. Here's a question from Herman's Hermit, otherwise known as Adam. Do you think a second lockdown will have worse compliance than the first after we open up? If we yes. See- <laughs> there we go. Next question. <laughs> Do you agree? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, people are already sick of the first lockdown. They're not going to be happy to go into the second one. Something I've been telling journalists, because apparently I talk to journalists, is <laughs> we have to do everything we can to avoid a second lockdown because right. the second one will not work. Yeah. So we got to do – we had to pull all the plugs right now to make sure the public health infrastructure is put in place now. Well, Adam's wondering if we see more illness and death – do you think it will be easier to get people to comply the next time? This is like a psychology question. Yeah. Or people will just be normalized that that's the cost of this disease is, is this amount of death. If the Americans are an example to learn from, they seem okay with death and dying. Mm. As long as you have to go to the bars. All your right. People, it's your people. Half, half of me. Yeah. Uh, Chelsea asks... What is your opinion on the claims of false positives with COVID-19 testing? Can you speak to the sensitivity and specificity of the test? Sure. So the swab tests that we're using most commonly have a high false negative rate. And um, that has to do a little bit with how the tests are conducted. Like they stick a thing in your nose and you swab back. It doesn't go all the way to the back of your throat, through your nose. That sounds uncomfortable. Right. So unless it's done with some expertise. Have you been tested, by the way? I've not been tested. Um, not for this disease anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had other kinds of swabs, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, you're, you're a veteran testee, I know that. <laughs> I got some testing stories. Anyway, later on. Um, so there's some ex- the expertise that goes in with doing the swab contributes to the false negative and false positive rate. So early uh, on people with insufficient expertise weren't going deeply enough with the swab. Right. That was raising the false negative rate. It's still... Because the patient was going, ah, it hurts. Stop right. it. So it still tends to be too high. And that's one of the reasons that we have these um, erroneous reports from South Korea about um, uh, people being reinfected. Mm-hmm. They're testing failures having to do with false negatives. Right. So they had them all along, but they got a false negative the first time. Right. So the, um, the official... false negative between, sorry. The, the official indicator for having recovered is two negative tests within 24 hours. Right. Okay. Right. And I need two of them because one of them might be false. Right. The assumption there, though, is that they are independent events. So let's say you've got a, um, like a 50% chance of having a false negative. You do it twice, yeah. it comes down to 25%. Assuming yeah. these are independent events. But right. Because it's the same person being tested. Yeah. yeah. And possibly the same technician as well. Right, right. And so the, um, the false negative is a real thing. Now... When it comes to the serology test, the test for antibodies, most of those have a high false positive rate. Ah, uh, okay. And and the funny thing here, or the unfortunate thing is, with the, the swab test, you want that false negative rate to be very low because it's a horrible thing to tell someone they're not infected in the actual. Yeah, yeah. With the serology test. With the serology test. Exactly yeah. right. So yeah. you've got the worst of both worlds here. Yeah, yeah. Right. So part of the challenge in the coming months is for the technology to be better refined to get those sensitivity and specificity numbers. Right. 
enter. Um, and then Chelsea has another question. I've recently started to do outdoor play dates with friends and their children. We are two adults and four children, seven and under. The adults keep a distance, but the kids don't. They bump into each other and touch, punch each other when playing games such as tag. Is this acceptable or are we all going to die of COVID? <laughs> These are the choices. Is it acceptable or you're all going to die? <laughs> Hopefully the answer is somewhere between those two. <laughs> okay. So first, let's be rational about this. Um, the the mortality rate, the A-specific mortality rate for children, my, my dog wants to get up here. Come here. Come here. No, right away. The age-specific mortality for young people is extremely low. So your child is highly unlikely to die of it. Uh, your child is also highly unlikely to get symptoms. But as we are learning, your child is very likely to spread it to others, including yourself. So they can get it from each other and give it to their families. So children are indeed a vector. Um, now, with the new bubble ideas in Ontario, if you're in a bubble with these other families and you have faith and trust in them not to be right. engaging in uh, extra bubbler affairs, right. then you're probably okay. Um, so if you're all in a bubble and you've all haven't been sick in two weeks, then you're all probably okay. Right. But, you know, we got some families with a teenager who sneak out at night to be with their friends in the schoolyard, right, right. And, and now your bubble has been compromised. Yeah. yeah. This is a huge... So the, minute, the minute someone goes to visit another bubble, then your bubble is really now including everyone else in that other bubble. That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. Um, I mean, to answer the question directly, yeah, it's risky. It's risky having your kids play with other kids. It's risky for you and the other adults more so than for the children themselves. More so than the kids. Or if there are elderly people back at the, at the house. In the homestead, right. Yeah, the homestead. All right. Um, or maybe that was Sapna that asked that. Sorry. That last question was Sapna. About okay. The... Children. Chelsea, yeah. Sapna, same thing. This next question. Who is that sexy Raywat Dianandan guy, and is he a real doctor? No. <laughs> I think that was from me. I think it was from you. That was from me. <laughs> I spelled your name, Dio Hanando. I think nice. that was right after your name was butchered on uh, CTV or wherever it was. <laughs> Try to get my daughter to jump in my lap. Come here, come here. Okay. Come on, come on. Good boy, come on. Come on. You can, you can. Oh, here he is. Here he is. He's, a, he's been not feeling that well of late, so we took him to the vet. Do you give your dog's consent to for him to appear on? Uh, I'm his uh, his legal guardian, so I signed on his behalf. Ah, you signed it. Okay. Yeah, so you can be part of the second half of this. Everyone program. really wants to see Harry, but I'm sure you're, you're not allowed. He, yes. Um, my physician spouse who uh, runs the household has oh. – I'm not blaming her. I also do not want him on social right, I understand. I just wanted to make that clear that <laughs> – that you had a rule about that. We didn't forget about it. Yeah. Um, okay. He's in the captain's ready room. <laughs> There's no, a joke about number one and number two, but anyway. I... They're Klingons <laughs> circling. Oh. <No. laughs> He's a baby. <laughs> the Klingons circling the big diaper. I don't know. <laughs> little diaper. Um, these don't line up very well with the question, so I'm not sure who's asking what, but I think this is Lisa who's asking, if a place such as a neighborhood is identified as a hot spot, what can be done about that? You call the Gestapo and have them uh, know. <laughs> I mean, so much of this is getting very authoritarian. If a neighborhood is identified as a hot spot, I'm, I'm very worried about stigmatization. Right. You know, because so much of this is correlated with low socioeconomic status, with ethnicity, with uh, working class behaviors, with large families, all this stuff. And so I worry that the long-term sociological damage done by labeling a place as being a hot zone right. outweigh the short-term gains from you know, avoiding that place. Yeah. So, Especially if you have a neighborhood that's full of essential workers who are having to go to work right. and, and, and it turns into a hotspot. Like, who's to blame for that? I mean, it's not but them. You have these horror stories. Everyone's of nurses, forced to go to work. Nurses and doctors being thrown out of their homes because their, um, you know, their neighbors don't want them around because they're carriers. Right. You know, these oh. are things that actually happen because people suck. Yeah, people suck. <laughs> um, but, but the yeah, answer is, what, what can you be done about that? What we can do is deploy more public health resources in these neighborhoods discreetly. We have unmarked mobile testing vans. 
Mm-hmm. We can offer free testing and better contact tracing. We can offer um, uh, income support to prevent people from having to go to work. There are things we can do that right. are compassionate and with high impact mm-hmm. that, that I hope the government is considering. Yeah, it's, 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 I'm, I'm not the first to observe it, but it's a strange thing that many of the people that are paid the most in our society are now cons- considered the least essential. And the people who are paid the least in our society are now considered most essential. There's a that real... includes us, Graham. It yeah, includes well, that's us. Why, that's why we're Zooming here, not... <laughs> and I'm in space. Okay. Uh, do we know if people can infect others while pre-symptomatic slash asymptomatic? Yes, I, mean, I guess we should distinguish 100%. those two things. Now, yeah, the distinction is important because um, I guess these questions were submitted before the WHO had its bit kerfuffled where they said that asymptomatic um, transmission is not a thing. What, what happened in that press conference was one of the scientists was asked a question off the cuff, and she spoke right. off the cuff without thinking too deeply about it. And she's also being very specific. Asymptomatic right. is not the same as pre-symptomatic. Right, right. Asymptomatic actually might not even exist. Oh. So um, asymptomatic is, of course, people with the disease who don't have any symptoms. It's likely that they have some symptoms, but they don't recognize them as symptoms. I see. So clinically, people have we, we clinically people haven't been identified as completely asymptomatic and positive for the virus. Right, because we don't know if they will develop symptoms later. I mean, I'm right. not aware of follow up yet. Yes. I'm sure the studies exist, but I'm not aware of them. Presymptomatic is more common, so we think that you start becoming infectious about three days before symptoms arise. Right. So That's how yes. viruses are very sneaky. This one in particular, and it's a yeah. big problem because yeah. with SARS-1 and influenza, um, it was easy to detect the cases because as soon as you started sneezing, oh, he's got it, let's right. just quarantine him, right? Yeah. This virus is very different. You start spreading it before you start sneezing. Right. And we think that up to 70 or 80%, uh, according to some estimates, of transmission is caused by these pre-symptomatic. These pre-symptomatic, yeah, because you would hope that if people are symptomatic, they wouldn't go into a public space. I mean, they're assholes as well, but yeah, (laughs) 100%. So the answer is yes, pre-symptomatic infection is definitely a big deal. Common colds work like that too, right? They spread spread before you're... Yeah, but even then, um, you're not fully aware that you've got it. I mean, you probably are symptomatic. Right. Or you've got a slight fever, you don't know it yet. Right, right, right. So we should probably be paying attention to if we just feel off for some reason. Even then, it's probably too late. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. So you can feel 100% fine and, and be spreading it. Yeah. Okay. That's comforting. It is. And also, people just have, have just a very poor sense of their own bodies. Right. <laughs> and also, people, a lot of people, a subset of people like to think they're sick all the time. But I think a lot of people <laughs> like, like to think that they're not sick. <laughs> they're called men and women. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which is which, I'm not saying. (laughs) Well, the man flew. Anyway. Uh, If, oh, do temperature checks in public places actually provide any protection? Good question. This idea. Good question. Okay, so here's my position on this. And again, I did a media thing on this as well. Is um, by the time you have a fever that is detectable, you're already have already been infectious, right? Um, second of all, you might be infectious and not have a fever. Right. Um, third, you might have a fever and have suppressed it with over-the-counter medications like right. right. So overall, it doesn't offer a whole lot, in my opinion. Um, however, maybe a false sense of security. A false sense or a good sense depends how you look at it. It's one element that can be added, one layer of protection. Um, other things, like some grocery stores have temperature checks now, and my bigger concern is what happens if you test positive while in line to get into the grocery store? So right. You're not stigmatized as a van rolls up and takes you away. Like I right. go to the corner to be publicly shamed and identified as being yeah. a typhoid Mary. So the, the sociological implications become even more so when we have this public. My local grocery store for a while was asking whether you traveled in the last 14 days and, and- and if you answered yes to any of their questions, they said, sorry, you, you can't come in. Yeah. And well, that's no not the same as taking the temperature and saying, you're sick. It's kind of similar. I mean, I can see some people being very sensitive and, and not wanting to uh, um, identify themselves as uh, potentially carriers. Right. 
maybe the Uber driver won't want to take you home if the grocery store has rejected you. Right. You know, uh, who knows? Uh, ultimately, I don't like the temperature checks for that reason. Is unless there's a, a system in place to safely and and, re- and respectfully take care of people who test positive, then right. I'm not in favor of it. Now, it seems I've heard of a lot of COVID transmission happens in the home, right? Because people are living together. Yeah. And so one person some gets it, and then everyone else in the home gets it. And so I believe um, oh, you might hear some banging in the background because it's 7:30. China's policy was when they identified someone who had it, they would go into a special center and they weren't allowed to go back home until they were through their, their symptoms. Hmm. Do, do you think that would be useful on a voluntary basis? I don't think so. And by the way, uh, I think it's really important that we have the 730 banging on okay. the recording. This is great yeah. for posterity purposes. Now, <laughs> again, for kids listening to this five years from now, that's what it sounds like. It's, it's, uh, I feel like I'm joining in almost. Bang, 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 bang. <laughs> we're, we're usually banging pots and pans. It's a lot louder. I think that's someone hitting their fence or something. Or a really big woodpecker is mutated. So, oh, yeah. If you think providing a voluntary, like, hotels aren't being used, right? So right. So if we find someone had it, so you could go stay free in this hotel. Don't endanger your family. Sure. Okay. I think, I think it's, it's useful for those people without the ability to quarantine at home. Right. Of concern for absolutely. Um, the more resources and tools given to the public to take care of themselves and each other, I'm in favor of. Can uh, you quarantine effectively at home by just putting a person in one room and then no one else goes in that room? Yeah, I think you can. I mean, I, I've seen some stats to show that uh, an infected spouse only gives it to their spouse like 30% of the time. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's possible, but you got to have a large enough home. And right. really, look, at my house, we, ha- we have a plan. Um, we had a plan, like if I get infected, I got to go live in the basement with the dog. Right. So, you know, there's a separate entrance there and a separate bathroom. And she would like so, send down food in a bucket. Like every <laughs> night for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> that ends in why. <laughs> exactly. So, but to answer your question, sociologically, uh, I'm troubled by anything that is compulsory. Like if you're telling people, yeah. you got to go to the gulag now because you got the. No, that's why I said, said voluntary. Oh, there's some more people. <laughs> cool. Now I'm feeling yeah. like a slacker talking to you instead of doing that. Welcome to the life of my students. <laughs> okay. Um, here's someone named Logan. I wonder who that is. Run, Logan, run. That's an old joke no one will get. If a family has autoimmune issues, although I don't know if this is lining up. I'm not if I, I don't know if I'm getting the right names. I'm right. sorry if I'm not attributing these properly. Someone asked, if a family has autoimmune issues such as thyroid, connective tissue disorders, rheumatoid arthritis, etc., would those diagnosed or not yet diagnosed with issues all be at higher risk if they get COVID-19? They are otherwise healthy individuals. I'm sorry, I'm being interrupted. By... <laughs> this could be my sushi order. Are you able to pause the... the yeah, let's pause, I'll pause the recording right now. Okay. Hey, oh, oh, I'm... And we're back. We're back. We are back. And that was an opportune interruption. I ordered some takeout or delivery sushi. Tip the guy 25%. I have tipped everyone 25% in these conditions. But how safe is it uh, to order? It's very safe. Yeah. It's very safe. I mean, there's been no cases that I'm aware of of anyone getting this disease from food or from services. People need your money. Uh, Yeah. So – and I always ask them to, to call me when they're outside. They don't have to come into the building. I go outside. and Right. You get, you get the disease from people, not from things. Right. So yeah. Stay away from people because people suck. Yeah. Okay. So I feel, I feel better about that. So. Good. Uh, I was on to another question. The rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, yeah. It was, it was about um, autoimmune issues. Okay, so autoimmune issues are not the same as immunocompromised issues. That's the first right, thing. okay. So an auto, autoimmune disease is like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, where your immune system attacks your own body. Um, can you, can, can you hear a baby? Can you yes. hear a baby in the background? <laughs> There's a baby in engineering. Captain Gway was upset about something. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> I'm a doctor, not a... <laughs> Jim, I'm an epidemiologist, not a real doctor. <laughs> anyway, autoimmune diseases are not the same as immunocompromised uh, state. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, however, many people with autoimmune diseases take drugs that compromise their immune systems. That makes sense because they're suppressing their immune system. Precisely right. right. Which is ironic because one might assume that if you have an overactive immune system that's attacking your own body, right. that might in turn offer some protection against an external invader right. like a virus. Um, that's unclear if that's true or not, but that would be the theory. But if you're taking a drug that suppresses your immune system, then you are possibly at risk. Now, there is no data yet that I'm aware of that suggests that autoimmune that people have a bad or worse reaction to this disease, right. except to the extent that it overlaps with other factors that make you susceptible. Right. By which I mean, what data we do have suggests that those people that have worst COVID reactions, mm -hmm. autoimmune diseases, are also those people who are also obese and diabetic. Right. And all the stuff. Uh, this person specifically ruled that out. They're otherwise healthy with no asthma, obesity, or hypertension. Uh -oh. Okay. Well, in that case, the age remains the highest. Uh, Right. factor. Now, I will say, though, that some people with autoimmune diseases like lupus are on hydrochloroquine, you know, the, um, oh, right. the, the Trump drug. Now, I, I'm not going to mock that drug because it does show some efficacy in, in some studies. Oh. Overall. So it is possible that people on lupus with that drug may have a, a better response. Mm -hmm. um, my, my safe answer is um, there is no evidence yet to show that the autoimmune disease in and of itself makes you more susceptible to getting the disease right. and more susceptible to having a bad reaction to when you get What about, um, I forget the term now, is it cytokine storm? Yes, the cytokine storm. So the cytokine storm is when your immune response is so overwhelming. Right. It kills you. So the mucus produced by your alveoli uh, mm. in your lungs is the pneumonia that, that, that drowns you. Um, an autoimmune... An autoimmune disorder is more susceptible to having that kind of yeah, reaction. Yeah, that would make sense to me. I'm not sure that would make sense to me. Um, yeah. All right. <laughs> Another one. <laughs> Another one. I haven't got a good answer to <laughs> That's it for our official questions. Yeah, I, I have one more oh, question right. I wanted to add on, which was uh, about the larger kind of, and this is not your bailiwick because you're not a sociologist. <laughs> Apparently, neither is autoimmune diseases. Yeah. <laughs> or measles. <laughs> um, or, or you're not a politician either. Uh, but no, as an epidemiologist, uh, I'm sure there's data that this uh, COVID has struck uh, poorer communities and communities of color more than wealthy white communities. Um, is there any data that can be gathered that could then be used to inform policy? Like how would that inform policy? Mm -hmm. Your resource distribution or where you concentrate your testing? Or... Okay, that's a really important question. And uh, many journalists have asked me that as well. Okay. <laughs> so there's something well, we've had 200 interviews. I'm sure you'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> no one is asking why I'm so good looking before they left. <laughs> well, I did. Um, uh, there's something we teach called the social socio demographic determinants of health. And the social socio determinants? Social yes, the social, okay. de social determinants of health. So right. um, why do people get sick? They get sick because their bodies are compromised in some fashion or they're exposed to some uh, pathogen or some other factor that gives them the mm -hmm. disease. But why are they then exposed? Often it's because of their race, their sex, their mm -hmm. age, their disability right. status, where they live, how wealthy they are, and right. so forth. So it's hard to disentangle those factors from health outcomes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they are proximally causal. Like, you're not getting COVID because you're black. You're getting right. COVID because you're poor and live in a neighborhood that doesn't allow yeah. you to socially distance and have a job that doesn't allow you to work from home, oftentimes because of long-term systemic social issues. Right. Opposed because you're black. Right. right? So Which what COVID has done is actually exposed a lot of these issues that people haven't been wanting to think about, right? But now... Exactly kind of, right. Yeah. So we haven't got a lot of this data in, the, in Canada yet, but in the U.S., they're studying it with a passion. And we know that um, African-Americans are several times more likely to get and die of this disease than Latinos. The Latinos are several times more likely to get and die of it than whites mm -hmm. uh, and, and so forth. Um, this is, I've heard it described well this way. When we have chronic diseases, chronic diseases are the result of behaviors, uh, poor nutrition, um, poor exercise, uh, mm -hmm. being exposed to toxic environments. Those are slow moving tragedies. Mm -hmm. They don't manifest for years or decades hence. 
the right. bad uh, fried chicken you have today or the lack of vegetables you have this month won't kill you until you're 60, possibly. Right. With this disease, though, it's allowed what would have been a chronic, slow-moving tragedy to manifest quickly in a period of weeks. Right. So what we're seeing is uh, the obese, the diabetic, the generally unwell people with poor microvitamin, micronutrient status mm. are dying very quickly. People are living in food deserts, right? Food deserts. Yeah. And, and they have jobs that do not allow them to physically distance. They have jobs right. that do not allow them to uh, work from home. They have no health insurance. They're not in places where they can get tested. Um, and they have not very good information sources either. So what do we do about this? Mm. Uh, that's the, the million-dollar question. And what we can do is, again, deploy public health resources more strategically and not just concentrate them in places where we know people don't need them as much right. as is what we usually do. Mm. Like the best hospitals are in rich neighborhoods. That should not be the case. Right. I mean, in a socialized medical system that like Canada has, why do the best neighborhoods have the best hospitals? It makes no sense. Or the best schools? It makes no sense. Um, so we need to have uh, education campaigns. We need to have deployed income incentive and um, top-up programs for, to disincentivize people from going to work when they're sick. We need to have programs for employers of low-income people to allow them to physically distance at work. Right. We need to have programs that allow them to get to work safely. Childcare programs that allow them to do all these things safely as well. Things that we should have done decades ago. Right, right, yeah. As I'm sure you understand, and many of the people uh, listen to well, understand already. It's interesting how you put it that what COVID has done is accelerated all these long-term chronic problems and made them all sort of come to the forefront at once. Um, so maybe that's one. I won't. I don't want to say positive, but one result that could lead to positive outcomes if people right. learn from. If we don't lose a sight of that. Yeah. But uh, do you have faith that we will? I don't. <laughs> Historically, when this gets resolved, all of these lessons will be lost. Um, but it's up to Maybe. us to make sure we don't. Yeah, exactly. That depends on people making sure that people don't forget them. So. Yeah, yeah. Which you're doing in a small way right here. So we'll see. Hey, size monkey. Woohoo. <laughs> any any uh, Chinese worlds of wisdom from the. Uh, no, I already I worked in my one about the Chinese doctor being the first one to use masks as a public health measure during a epidemic that was the only one i had so are you going on sabbatical soon Graham? july 1st right on yes and i'm going on paternity leave uh july 1st so okay. uh you won't hear from us for a while possibly <laughs> <laughs> unless we get bored as we probably will so um that's that's it for this episode of science monkey yes uh thank you so much for sending us the questions as yes. always visit us at sciencemonkey.ca and mm -hmm. uh, follow us at uh at sciencemonkeyca on twitter Right. And don't bother us otherwise. <laughs> oop, oop, Ray Watt. <laughs> oop, oop. <laughs> All right. See you later.